Thank you for listening to the Matt's Movie Reviews Podcast, available on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and Stitcher. Also, please follow Matt's Movie Reviews on Facebook, YouTube, Parlor, and Instagram. And of course, be sure to visit www.mattsmoviereviews.net for the latest reviews, top 10 lists, and more. Now, on to the show. We will hear arguments in Roe against Wade. You may proceed. If you really want to know how abortion became legal in our country, I will tell you the true story. Dr. Mildred Jefferson, would you like to head up a Right to Life group that I'm starting? Dr. Bernard Nathanson's clinics are performing a thousand abortions per week. That's why I'm taking up the fight. I wanted to get abortion legalized across the country. We're looking for a pregnant girl to challenge the abortion laws. We'll give her a pseudonym. Call her Jane Roe. It's genius that we no one will ever know about her past. First, they came after the Jews, and then they came after the mentally deficient. We did nothing, and now they're coming after the unborn. And so you're gonna do nothing? Robert Byrd for Henry Wade. No judge or jury in their right mind would ever let abortion happen in Texas. Hello and welcome to the Matt's Movie Reviews Podcast. I am your host, Matthew Perkovich, and this is episode number 336. Releasing April 2nd on digital is Roe v. Wade, a historical drama that delves into the players, the shrewd tactics, and the unknown facts that led to the Supreme Court decision to legalize abortion in the United States. A film that exposes little-known truths and features a cast that includes John Voight, Corbin Burnson, Jamie Kennedy, and many more recognisable names, Roe v. Wade is a film sure to stir many emotions and illuminate many minds. And joining me now on the Matt's Movie Reviews podcast is the co-director and star of Roe v. Wade, Nick Loeb. Nick, I thank you very much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. So... Look, I, the first question I've got to ask is that the issue of abortion is an incredibly divisive one. Roe v. Wade, clearly a monumental event in regards to that subject. Um, yet you decided to make a film about it. And what is it about this issue, that event, that really drove you not only to make the film, but you dedicated four years of your life to a movie that I'm sure you knew you receive a lot of kind of heat for from your industry and maybe from people outside the industry as well. What was it about the issue, the subject, that court case that really drove you to make this movie? Well, I, I think it was a culmination of a lot of things. I think one, it's the most famous court case in, in U.S. history. And no one's made a real Hollywood movie. Hmm. Uh, I mean, there was a made-for-TV movie in, in the 80s, but it had nothing to really do with with the case uh, at all. It was sort of, uh, it was based on on one of the characters who really wasn't even involved. And so I, I just, you know, I, you know, Hollywood makes movies on everything. And so I just, I couldn't believe no one had made a movie on the most famous court case in, in U.S. history. Yep. And the most controversial court case in U.S. history. Yep. And when I, and you know, every American, um, every American's heard of it, but no American really knows uh, about it which is interesting. I mean, everybody knows that Roe v. Wade was a court case that legalized or gave women the right to have an abortion, but no one has any idea uh, about it and how it got decided, how it got heard, who decided what or anything. And when I started to look into it, I realized it was fascinating because it wasn't just sort of a, you know, a straightforward black and white thing. There was a lot of, um, conspiracy there was a lot of manipulation there was a lot of i mean it almost was like a 
uh, an Oliver Stone esque JFK movie. Yeah. Um, and for me as an entertainer, you know, I found that to be, you know, exciting as well and entertaining. So not only could I tell the most famous court case uh, in American history, but I could also uh, do it in a way that was fun and exciting. So the interesting thing about your movie is that, as you said, it talks about the, the facts of all the, the of this movement that really led to this court case ruling. And you mentioned before the films of Oliver Stone. I think in a more kind of contemporary standard, you can also talk about the films of Adam McKay, what he did with the big short and vice as well, in, in that you're weaving kind of <clears throat> these fact-based things into a narrative feature. I'd imagine that would be very difficult, though, because considering it is, it is a narrative feature, you have to you deal with dialogue, you're dealing with characters as well, you're, um, you're making a drama as much as you're making like a fact-based kind of movie. How difficult was it to try to get these factoids that you know of, these events that you read about, and weave it into a script that can really play itself out in a narrative film? Well, I mean, you, you bring up an interesting point. I mean, the, you know, the big short really was 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 very much similar. I mean, I think we would compare ourselves a little more to that because it's also dealing with a, you know, a complicated topic. It's not just about abortion, but it's about the law and how things are decided and how our constitution works and how our judicial system works. And and almost like the big short, it was quite complicated having also then to weave it into a story. And I think the big short used several different uh, storylines and weaved it all together uh, at the end of the one. You know, we, you know, when you're making a movie, you know, it's not, a, you know, movies are not about events, right? So the big short was not really about the stock market crash. Roe v. Wade was not about the decision in the, in the, in, in the court, the movie, when you see it. The movies are about characters and you have to tell stories with characters because the audience wants to follow somebody's journey uh, and, and go through their journey and, and feel like they do or feel for them or against them or how, however you want to feel for that character. And that's how you tell a story in a movie. And so we had to weave in, you know, facts through, through that, through, um, through a character who told the story and, and, um, and we had to use other characters as well. Um, not just him. And, uh, and we, and because we wanted to tell a story and be as factual as possible, we, we used, pro-choice characters and and pro-life characters um and we also didn't want to we didn't really want to vilify anybody right we wanted to tell the truth i don't think anybody was truly evil during this everybody was trying to do the best they thought they could do to win uh and they all both thought both sides thought their reason was better um and one side thought they were helping women the other one thought they were saving lives and so you know, you, it was it was sort of a very careful weave of having to utilize all characters and not try to vilify anybody, um, but just lay out the facts and the truth. The character that you play in the, in the movie is Bernard Nathanson, otherwise known affectionately throughout the film as Bernie. Um, his story is really interesting. He was the, like a leading activist and also a, practic- a practitioner. He was a doctor um, of abortion. I mean, I think he had a thousand, thousands of abortions done at, at his hands. Um, later in his life, though, he went through a certain conversion, both ideologically and spiritually as well. Um, his story is central. While you have a lot of characters, it's his story that's central to this movie. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he has narration of the world that really kind of drives the film. He's kind of like almost like the, um, the, the the person who really kind of fills in the gaps there. How did you know that Bernard Nathanson was the character 
to use to to really put central to the story of upon which you can really kind of like put together all this kind of like expanding web of <laughs> players and facts, etc. In the beginning, I didn't. <clears throat> he was not the he was not the initial protagonist in the movie, and um, you know he was a character in the movie, but he wasn't the protagonist. I mean, I wrote the script with a friend of mine, and um, and we struggle uh, to figure out who was going to be our protagonist. I mean, initially, it was um, it was a pro life it was a pro life character, um, not a pro choice character. Um, and we went through different iterations of how we wanted to to, to write the film and, and from whose point of view. Um, and so, you know, Bernie's story was just so interesting. You know, when we first set out to make the movie, you know, being pro-life myself, you know, I was going to tell a pro-life story from a pro-life point of view. Um, and we, you know, we wrote that script and it was fine. It was interesting, but... You know, I and and Bernie kept on standing. Although he was a character in there, he wasn't the protagonist. Everybody who read the script, Bernie kept on standing out as sort of the most interesting. And so we went and we decided, why don't we just tell it from the pro-choice point of view? And that's how we told the movie. We told the movie from the pro-choice perspective. <clears throat> um, uh, and it ends up you know, Bernie had a conversion and became pro-life. And I thought it was, you know, it ended up becoming a lot more interesting. And when you write a character in a movie, it's like it's always important that your main character has an arc and a change that you follow him through. And that, that was really um, with Bernie. But we never really knew. We, To be quite honest, it really wasn't until the end that Bernie became our protagonist. You co-direct the film with Kathy Allen. Um, how did the decision come about for you to direct the movie for the first time? This is your direct uh, tour, your debut. And how did you find uh, the experience, um, considering it's such a big subject, you're dealing with a big cast with huge names, um, and you're also taking on so many different uh, other responsibilities as well as starring, writing, and producing the film? You know, um I, I, the challenge of finding another director, um, and we spoke to other directors, and the challenge we kept on coming up against was that none of the directors truly understood the characters. They, you know, Kathy and I had done a, a year of research. We, we had read over 40 books and court transcripts and watched interviews. You know, any, and, and we wanted to be, it was so important because of how controversial the topic was that we be as honest as we could with who these characters were, uh, where these scenes took place, uh, how people felt and what was going on in their lives at the time and how their relationships connected with one another. And for somebody to truly understand that, it, you weren't just going to get that reading a script. You're going to have to understand the backgrounds of every character in, in the film. And that would have taken the director months and months, I mean, to read and really, you know, truly understand all of, I mean, it took me a year. I mean, I'm a slow reader. So maybe it would take, you know, somebody, you know, uh, um, six months to do this. And so Kathy and I just said, you know, nobody really knows this better. We visualize the entire thing when writing it from all the research we've done. So, like no one else knows what all of this feels like and looks like, but besides us. So, 
that's what we end up directing. And I think it was good that we had a perspective of both a male and a female director and a male and female writer for um, a storyline that deals with, you know, relationships between men and women. Right. And then, and, um, and then I, and I, and I also think, you know, yes, taking on the responsibilities of everything was very challenging and thank God I had a partner to help me, you know, who directed the, you know, the scenes I was in, she directed. I'd imagine being a director on this film in particular, there'll be such an experience to direct someone like a John Voight, um, who I think, you know, over the years, John Voight has really expressed his opinions more in regards to his um, uh, politics, et cetera. I think he's been unfairly um, um, castigated because of that. In my opinion, he's one of the great American actors of all time. I mean, the amount of films that he did, especially in the 70s and 80s, even up to the 2000s, like he, people forget that he was in Ali, um, that Michael Mann film, and he was always unrecognisable in that film, and he does great work in Ray Donovan as well. What's it like directing a John Voight? directing an actor like that, who I'm sure you have seen in screen so many times and would have admired his work as well. Um, much easier than directing the younger ones today. And I'll tell you, they, they, John, and not only John, but all of his colleagues who are on the Supreme Court, um, they all came 10 times more prepared, right? Not only were they prepared because they, uh, they 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 knew the script and they and they knew their scenes and they knew their lines, but they knew their characters. I mean, John came and started quizzing me. Man, did you know that Chief Justice Berger did this? And she and I go, yes, John. I wrote the character. Yes, son. And he, you know, he was and he was trying to get you know catch me like I didn't know what I was doing. And um, he really understood and knew the character and had had, had done his homework. Uh, and to the point where, you know, you know, uh, Chief Justice Berger was a little heavy. Maybe we should, you know, make me a little more stocky. And they really cared and wanted to get into it. So it made it it made it that much easier um, when the when the actors were prepared and they knew their roles and they knew their characters. The thing that's really interesting about your movie, it shows the opposing forces in this one kind of movement on one end, you have the pro-life side, the other side, the pro-choice. Um, and it talks about the figures I don't think many people know about. I myself should, certainly did not. Being Australian, I'm not so immersed into American um, history and American politics as, of course, um, uh, you would be. Um, but there are certain figures that I was really like, wow, I had no idea about this person. I had to, you know, look them up later and looked at your fact sheet as well in, in regards to these characters, one of them being um, Larry Ladder, or Lawrence Ladder, um, who is portrayed by Jamie Kennedy in the film. He's this guy who's obsessed with Margaret Sanger. He, he's essentially, I think, I think I heard you um, call him or someone called him. He was essentially the father of the abortion movement. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, you have Dr. Milford Jefferson, who was the first black woman to graduate from Harvard Medical School, and um, she was a president of the National Rights of Life Committee, and she's played by Stacey Dash in the movie. Um, you know, when you have characters, these larger-than-life characters like this, um, how important was it for you to really present that to the audience so that they're educated and they know just exactly who is behind a lot of what was going on during these times? Well, you know, I find it interesting, you know, you you made a comment that you don't really know, you know, being Australian, you don't know much about American history. And I'll tell you, Larry Later 
and Mildred Jefferson were such important people in American history that no one's, not just you, but no one's ever heard of. I mean, Mildred Jefferson, I mean, I'll tell you, we'll start with Mildred. The majority of African-Americans in this country who break barriers are put up in a pedestal, revered, talked about constantly. Um, no one's ever heard of Mildred Jefferson. And, and to, and to, you know, at that time, she broke a tremendous amount of barriers. Not, I mean, in her hospital, um, at, you know, uh, at, at Boston, uh, Boston University Hospital, at Harvard University. Um, she was, she was the first, you know, black woman to graduate Harvard Medical School. Um, at that period in time, that was tremendously a huge accomplishment. And no one's ever heard of her. And the reason no one's ever heard of her was because she's pro-life and the second president of the National Right to Life. If she was a, yeah. a major pro-choice advocate, you would have heard of her. Larry Later, I'm <clears throat> the, I'll tell you the reason you never, so Larry Later, if you go out and read 50 abortion books, pro-choice, pro-life, you will realize that Larry Later is essentially was the father of the abortion movement. Um, he's really the first guy to write books on the topic. Um, the Supreme Court essentially utilized his books uh, and cited them in, in, their, in their findings in Roe v. Wade. Um, and, 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 you, and not just you haven't heard of them, no one's heard of them. And most people in the pro-choice, pro-life movement has <laughs> never heard of Larry later. And, 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 and the reason you've never, and this is sort of just an opinion, so take this for what it's worth. Um, the reason I believe that no one's heard of Larry later is that because if, if you give Larry the credit for abortion in America, you have to take it away from the women movement. And I think, because then everyone's heard of, you know, Gloria Steinem and Bella Abzug. And, um, and so, the, you know, these are very famous women's rights activists that everybody has heard of. Um, Betty Friedan, who, who's in our movie. And, and, and essentially everybody assumes or thinks or that abortion is legalized because of the women's rights movement in America. And yes, they were a tool um, that got it there, but it really was Larry later. And then I think if you give the if the credit goes to Larry, uh, you got to take it away from from the women. And I think that's probably why you've never heard of Larry later. But that's just you know, I'm just speculating on that. You know, there's a scene in the movie, and it features a song. And the song, the lyrics or the title of the song is "There Is a Fortune from Abortion." And when this scene came up, it was almost kind of like surreal, kind of like I didn't know how to take it because it just seemed like such a surreal thing to me. As I, I, I was like, well, there's no way that could have been real, but that was a real song. Where, how did you come across that song? Where, where, did, where did that first came into your kind of uh, uh, your reading, your research into this? And once, a, once you did find that in bit of info where you're like, well, look, we've got to have that song in the movie because it's just too, in one way, too surreal, another way, too weird. In another way, I think it speaks quite a lot about where both of these characters are coming from in their approach to the abortion issue. Uh, yeah, I mean, we found it in in Bernard, one of Barnard Nathanson's book, I think it was Aborting America. 
And I and if you if you watch the movie through the epilogue, you'll see that we, we bring bring that up and we show exactly what page um, that came from from that book. That was a song that the residents used to sing um, in in school when when Bernard was in medical school. And it was like I mean it, it was just I mean you hear the lyrics I mean it's a it's a shockingly ridiculous um, that this was going on. And I, you know, and so it just, it was just too cinematic uh, not to put this in the movie. We had to do it. A lot of things that are going on now in the last several years is the, you know, I was, I was going to, I would say the emergence of fake news, but as clearly as your film shows, fake news has been around for quite some time now. And what's really interesting is how Nathanson and and later kind of fed the media fake stats in regards to illegal abortions, et cetera, to kind of get the narrative on their side. It was really kind of like a shrewd, almost kind of like a a tactical kind of game they were playing there. Um, And, of course, the media reported it to a really kind of ignorant public and they ate it up and then they got fueled into the entertainment industry and the media and it just turned into this big kind of thing. When people watch your movie and they see the kind of tactics used, especially regards to peddling fake statistics in the media and how the media were more than happy to, to present these fake statistics, how much of a revelation do you think this will be? Or do you think that considering the things that have happened over the last years, people will not be so shocked to find that, hey, there's a lot of bullshit going on in regards to what's happening in the media. Yeah, I mean, over the last couple of years, I think that everyone's sort of fed up and, and, and have, have recognized everything. And I think what's interesting is people are looking at this and being like, wow, this is not new, right? This has been going on for 50 years. Um, and it's just now that we're learning about it because there's so, so many different outlets. Um, social media is allowing us to be able to find the truth and see the other side. You know, back then, you know, if Time Magazine came out and said, you know, 50% of women are having abortions in America, like without Twitter, Facebook, the internet, computers, um, maybe just two or three other periodicals, how, how, how do you oppose that, right? How, how do you make sure that that's correct, right, or wrong? You just, um, you just, believe what you read. Um, and so I think time, you know, with the fact that we're finding all this out now doesn't negate the fact that it was probably worse 50 years ago because there were there was there was nobody to fact check you. Uh, the public wasn't fact checking you and there were no other outlets to fact check you. So I think it's just, you know, a revelation and that people are going to be shocked about that. But I, th- I don't think it's going to really, as you mentioned, I don't think it's going to be a tremendous impact on people being upset about it because, you know, we live it on a daily basis today with, with fake news. You know, I was, my first question, I mentioned that making a project like this, there was no doubt you will receive scrutiny, that you have heat coming your way. Were you surprised, though, that the amount of resistance and scrutiny that you did get? I mean... I've heard of reports, read reports, and I heard some interviews you had before about how, 
you know, there were occasions where locations were being denied, cast and crew, not a big number. I think people were putting too much emphasis. Any production would have hundreds of people of it, and I think you only lost maybe a dozen or so, maybe less than that. But still, there were circumstances where some people left the project, get publications, not only writing uh, derogatory kind of articles, but there were physical altercations that journalists had with your cast, uh, with your crew uh, during filming. Um, when these things happen, are you at all surprised by the vitriol coming your way? Or did you say to yourself, you know, this is us, we're dealing with a movie here that's going to bring about big emotions and, you know, we've got to be ready for these things to happen? Yeah, I mean, I can, you know, um, I knew it was going to happen. Uh, um, you know, to the, some of the extents um, that haven't been become public, uh, yet, um, I just was sort of a little bit shocked that certain organizations would have the blatant, like blatantly falsified documents and completely lie about stuff um, that are huge, respectable organizations. And, and it, you know, that they could really get into trouble over this. And so, um, and you'll find, I mean, at some point, all well, that'll come out. It just can't come out right now. But I, yeah, I mean, some of it was a little bit shocking. The, the, all the minuscule stuff, sure. Um, and, but that happens on, you know, listen, I tell everybody, you know, it happens on every movie, you know, whether it's really pro-choice or or it's uh, a horror flick or a comedy. I mean, the, the most ridiculous thing you know, is the news and it's great because they're just, you know, they're just giving us more press. I mean, to come out and say, these guys had a script and it was a hidden script and nobody, they shot it under a secret name. Well, guess what? So does every single Marvel movie, yeah. every single DC movie yeah. shoots with secret scripts under the name. <laughs> but the media doesn't go Spider-Man's not going to be called Spider-Man today. <laughs> you know, you know, it's the secret, you know, and so, um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's the same thing everybody else does. I, we're just getting a little more attention about it. <laughs> I think something that's going on right now is that, well, has been going on for a while is the, the culture war. And I think what is happening now more than ever is that there are filmmakers now, there are producers now, maybe not um, big-time movie studios, but definitely, like, maybe smaller indie studios are uh, kind of fighting back. I mean, I don't know if you saw the news from a few months ago, the Daily Wire have started, have put their foot into the entertainment sphere now. They're making their own movies. Salem Now have been making movies for a little while now. Do you think that a lot of people out there are kind of sick of one of the biases that's happening within the entertainment industry, especially the film industry, and are now putting their money and their efforts uh, where their mouth is and really want to make the movies that are important to them and fight back against what is no doubt in my mind, a really kind of um, uh, um, collaborated kind of event from one side of the political spectrum to really kind of like silence voices more from the conservative side of things. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I I mean, I applaud that there's some people trying to get together, but there's really no no real true true movement into the into pop culture today. Uh, I mean, it's it's you know, it's from you know very small sources that are trying to do it. Um, 
you know, me trying to scrape money together to make row. Um, I mean, you know, and yes, the left is trying to silence anybody who doesn't agree with them. And, and um, you know, I think, I, you know, uh, I think it's sort of ironic that, you know, the party that's supposed to be uh, the more open minded um, is the party that's the most most closed off to anybody else's uh, mindset. But, they're all, but anyway, there's neither here nor there. I think the challenge is, though. You know, the, the the media is completely controlled by the left, whether it's uh, the news or entertainment today, um, 99% of it is controlled um, by the left. And so we don't have a voice until some billionaire has the courage to come and buy a movie studio. Um, and even, even if they did that, we would still be like, what, one-fifth uh, uh, of the voice today. Um and so I just don't see that happening because the, the conservatives have just never understood how to utilize pop culture or the media. There's only really been one guy who understood how to do it. He became president of the United States. Um, and he became president of the United States when I'm talking about Trump because he knew how to use pop culture in the media. Um, and that's what got him elected. And our the, the conservative movement today still doesn't get it or understand it. They still want to have galas and preach to themselves. They want to do movies that only preach about uh, their uh, things that they like and they want to their own people. And, you know, that doesn't work. Um, you know, you need to make sort of, you know, broader uh, type movies, which is one of the reasons I try not to make it hit you over the head faith based, you know, you know, you're right. I'm wrong type of movie that doesn't work. Um, and so I try to be open, have a, you know, a movie that would o- open some, hearts and minds and allow people that are maybe, you know, somewhere in the middle of the road um, on the issue to come in and take a look. So for everyone out there listening, Roe v. Wade releases April 2 on digital. Um, people could go to a really cool website, actually, roevwademovie.com. Um, it's got places where you can you give you um, people options, or well, Nick, to actually host a, a virtual screening, which is pretty cool, or a screening in their location, or even host a theatre screening. It's got resources. It's got a fact-check page. Uh, Nick, I, I imagine that considering or the scrutiny that was coming your way um, in all the things that were happening during production, post-production, et cetera, that putting a fact check together is a really effective way to kind of counter against what I'm sure um, might be claims against the film about this, that, or the other. Um, was the fact check kind of thing something that was always in the cards? Was that something that kind of came about after you had to deal with certain uh, um, as, um, publications? No, it was pieces? a bunch of, you know, it was, a, it was some, some folks that were in the pro pro-life movement they came to us and they wanted to put this together for us and do it you know i think it's interesting it's nice um i don't know i don't know necessarily if it's going to be helpful uh for multiple reasons i think one i think it stops the media from criticizing us which is not not always a good thing i mean sometimes we want the media to criticize us it gives us media right so you know so um uh number two I, I don't think it also really matters at the end of the day because the media is going to lie regardless. They're going to tell it. They're going to say we lied and made stuff up regardless of how many, you know, facts or proof or books or we put in front of them. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I love to tell the story of, um, of the Daily Beast. I mean, the Daily Beast wrote an article about how we lied about Margaret Sanger. Now, Margaret Sanger was the founder of Planned Parenthood. And if you Google her and read about her, uh, and to read her own autobiography, she was a eugenicist. 
and he an admitted eugenicist. Not to mention that recently she's actually been cancelled by the very same pro-choice people who once um, supported her. So that goes a long way as well. Well, great. And it's interesting because they said, well, Nick Loeb made out Margaret Sanger to be a racist. And although she was a eugenicist, she was definitely not a racist. So Nick Loeb lied in his portrayal of Margaret Sanger. I mean, you can't make this up. I mean, it's, you don't understand. You cannot be a eugenicist without being a racist, right? I mean, it's like, so, I mean, you know, the facts at the end of the day really don't, don't mean anything. Well, for everyone out there listening, April to Roe v. Wade, I definitely people recommend to check this movie out, learn something about um, recent uh, American history. Um, like I said, John Voight, Corbin Burnson, uh, Jamie Kennedy, a bunch of real-known names in the movie. In Nick Loeb, you star in it to your directorial debut. Congratulations to you uh, with the film and best of luck with the upcoming release. Thank you so much for your time today.